0: Welcome to In The Demo, a show about the stories that get told about groups, how those stories got made, what we think those stories get wrong, and why it matters. You hosts, Farah Bostic is the founder and head of research and strategy of The Difference Engine, a strategic insights consultancy focused on helping business leaders make decisions. Adam Piano, author and brand consultant and managing director of brand strategy at Arizona State University. You are now in The Demo. Hey there. This week it's just me, Farah Generation Refusenik, with our third installment in, as Roman Mars says on one of his shows, a series of indefinite length about all those precursors to marriage, parenthood, adulting that the press and business and politicians like to fret over – When millennials seem to be underperforming, and that they will, in short order, begin to panic about for Gen Z, too. Those precursors are pretty obvious. Dating, sexual intimacy, romantic relationships, the ups and downs of discovering what you want in a partner, and whether you want a partner, and what kind of life you want to form around that relationship, and so on. Those parts, the parts where people are fully adults, engaging in the fun and tragic parts of single life, those parts are so frequently omitted from the narratives we create around young people. Frankly, it's omitted from the narratives about old people, too. Instead, we get this kind of gap. Teens and college students sext, ghost, hookup, breakup, and so on, and a million thought pieces about the sex lives of young people are rushed out. Young adults don't get married right after college, don't have children right away, and we freak out about that. Then we worry about the financial stability and retirement prospects for adults in their 30s and 40s, but we don't stop to think about or interrogate what is even happening in that period between leaving your parents' home and creating a home of your own, often with someone else. We take a prurient interest in the sex lives of young people, but not an open hearted one about how they navigate our tech enabled world of sex, intimacy, dating, and relationships. We also, as is so often the case, focus our moral hand-wringing about them on white, affluent, coastal, urban teens and young adults and leave behind the vast majority of us who are none of those things. So as we have looked at these themes and ideas and asked these questions, I defaulted to my mother's advice to look it up. Surely there were books written about this part of people's development. So much has been written about millennials. There simply had to be a bunch of books about this part of the experience. I mean, it's millennials and sex, obvious. Let's let's sell those books. But just as I found only one book about the Black millennial experience, Reniqua Allen's excellent book, It Was All a Dream, A New Generation Confronts the Broken Promise to Black America... I also found only one book about millennials and intimate relationships. So I'm excited to tell you that the rest of this episode is my conversation with the author of that book, Kristen D'Alessandro, Ph.D. The book is called Intimate Inequalities, Millennials Romantic Relationships in Contemporary Times. She looks at the intersecting identities of race, gender, class, age, and sexual orientation, and finds that for most people in the millennial generation, things really haven't changed as much as we might have hoped, especially when it comes to heterosexual relationship dynamics. She also finds that class may be the identity with the greatest weight in ordering people's preferences and behavior. And finally, She does identify in our conversation some hope coming from those who identify as queer or who want to queer the traditional dynamics of heterosexual relationships to foster more balanced, respectful, clear, and genuinely intimate relationships and partnerships. Anyway, here's my interview with Kristen D'Alessandro about her research and what, if anything, makes millennials different from the rest of us when it comes to love and sex. I hope you enjoy it.
1: I'm Kristen D'Alessandro. I have a PhD in sociology, so I have an academic background, which is the environment that this book was born out of. Uh, currently, I've made a little bit of a pivot, uh, which I think is increasingly common uh, for people in my situation. So right now, I'm actually a senior researcher at a place, an organization called OC Tanner. And we are an employee recognition company that essentially we offer a uh, Products and services that aim to help organizations elevate their organization's culture, um, because you know our research has just shown that that leads to a slew of positive outcomes uh, around the employee experience. Hmm. So it is a little bit of a pivot from where I was when I wrote the book, but essentially it's, it's kind of in the same wheelhouse because you know all day long I really just study. So I'm still studying people in uh, in a workplace context right now. So yeah, that's just a little bit about me and
0: and so I think you said this in a um, in some of our email exchanges, but you do consider yourself to be a, a millennial yourself.
1: Yes, I am in the millennial generation, so I'll give my age away.
0: <laughs> yeah, and as
1: as so, I guess as we say uh, sometimes in sociology, my book could be considered a little bit of me search. But um, you know, the people that I interviewed, I was lucky to interview kind of a range of different people with different identities. So you know, we did share that age identity, but. Um, they were different from me in a lot of ways, uh, in in many cases. Yeah. So, cool. yeah.
0: what, I mean, one of the things I've, I'm extremely curious about is is for people who do say, "Yep," and, 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 and candidly, I think some of this is because. There there have been periods of time where in the kind of early formation of Gen Y, millennial, whatever we were going to call them, you know, back in like 99, 2000, when that debate was active, um, mm-hmm. there was a sense that if you were born after like 73, 74, you were no longer a Gen Xer, but you weren't a millennial until you were born in like 1980, 81, 82, something in that, in that range. Mm-hmm. And so I belong to the generationless generation. And so we get to be the Oregon Trail generation or the uh, what is the guy's name from? Um, I can't believe, uh, Jordan Catalano was (laughs) for a while, you know, my so-called life was the thing. And so it's been a joke on the show that when we do our introductions, Adam says he's Gen X and I make something up that day about what generation Mm -hmm. I am. So I will confess that that is probably why I find it fascinating that every time we ask one of our millennial guests, what generation they are, they say that they're millennials. and They're like, yep, totally millennial. So Mm -hmm. what does that mean? from your perspective and your experience, what is it to be a millennial?
1: Uh, To be a millennial, Mm -hmm. um, just in general, or in the context of the book? Just in general, general. we'll come to the book. (laughs) Gotcha. So, I mean, to me, I feel like the thing that differentiates millennials from other generations, maybe the most, or, you know, something that I really strongly identify with is that argument that we are kind of the last generation to experience the world before the internet and really before a lot of the daily technologies that we use right now. You know, we came of age when we didn't have that technology, but sort of finished coming of age when, you know, the technology arrived, right? So, you know, I'm part of that generation that was on AOL instant messenger. Um, You know, I had the brick phone when I was in high school. Um, And, you know, so that is something that I think is a little bit unique. Uh, You know, we have our little I think like every generation, you know, we have our sort of cultural uh, symbols and markers that we that we sort of uh, associate with childhood and nostalgia. You know, millennials are really into the 90s, I think. <laughs> I mean, in the 90s are trending right now. Right. right. But um, I feel like millennials kind of feel a little especially protective over it because we, you know, we were actually there and can remember it uh, mm-hmm. when we were used, as opposed to, you know, no, no shade on Gen Gen Z or Gen Alpha, but um, you know, now it's sort of, kind of. I think I, I think of it the way that you know, there was sort of. I remember in the '90s there being like a '70s resurgence, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like that's kind of how the '90s resurgence is um, for for younger folks today. But yeah, I mean, to answer your question, I really feel like it's that technology changeover. Mm-hmm. You know, we we remember what it was like to grow up before. Um, everybody was online before we had cell phones, but you know that stuff dropped before we were adults, mm-hmm. and so you know our youth is kind of characterized by that interesting transitional period.
0: That's it's really interesting because very early on in the myth making around millennials was the idea of d- being digital natives, and mm-hmm. that um, I, I think the the adults at the time sort of felt like you know you'd be too young really to remember. I mean, I, I keep seeing these kinds of tropes of like you know, the Thomas Guide and the phone book and <laughs> and all of these mm-hmm. kind of ways we found information before the internet. And what's been interesting. Especially in the last couple of years, I feel like is this reclamation of actually n- no, we we do kind of you know we were children, but we were conscious um, before mm-hmm. before certainly like the what we now understand to be the smartphone and before everybody had a cell phone or something um, similar. I think that's a really mm-hmm. interesting kind of taking back, I guess, of that story of digital mm-hmm. native, which was yeah. which was so prevalent certainly in the world I was living in, which was just like mm-hmm. they've only known a world with the internet, they've only known a world with. Int- you know, immediacy and so on. Um, Uh So that's really interesting.
1: Yeah. And part of that, I mean, just to add to that too, you know, I think part of that was growing up online. We were, we were that generation that sort of uniquely discovered that there's a lot of opportunity with technology, mm-hmm. but we also have to be careful, right? You know, right. I talked to my coworker, my coworker has uh, sons who are Gen Z. And, it, you know, from their perspective, it's much, they're much more cognizant of sort of the perils of, you know, putting your information online <laughs> and being very online, right? And they understand how to be careful where I feel like millennials uh, are part of that generation that, maybe we put too much of ourselves online, or, you know, we weren't quite sure we were all learning this sort of new, brave new world, so to speak. And so, um, you know, we've we've kind of had an interesting learning experience in that way. That's
0: super interesting, too. I, I was having a similar conversation the other day with a friend of mine, where <laughs> she was, she had been looking through my Instagram and was like, you don't, you don't do a lot of selfies. And I was like, I'm, Tools for selfies like that was was not our (laughs) that was not our jam um the selfie like plenty of like pictures of groups of us that someone else took Mm -hmm. but not a lot of selfie and uh, and one of my other a former neighbor of mine is is a i think she's 21 22 something like that now i've known her since she was five but she um she was her kind of contribution to the conversation was about how careful she's always been online, mm-hmm. And, and this was something that I remember when she first kind of got on to snap and Instagram and things like that, there was a lot of like this kind of posing where mm-hmm. she's on it, but you don't see her face. And it's, you know, she and her friends would have like pictures of each other where they'd all be kind of obscuring their faces from the camera because they were very, they were children technically at the time. Mm-hmm. And they were very conscious of that. Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting point, too, that kind of learning firsthand about the yeah. perils of that uh-huh. and being kind of thrust into it at a developmental stage where things are worth trying and then you go, oh, well, <laughs> maybe they're not. <laughs> like, um, so what, what sparked your interest in this topic of, of intimacy and relationships as you were pursuing this project?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So, and I've, I've been be- in anticipation of this conversation, I've been reflecting upon it. So doing, you know, doing the ro- rolling back the Rolodex to the roots of when this started. So when I was a young grad student, uh, literally and figuratively, um, I, at that time, you know, which was about 10, 15 years ago, there was this really strong interest in research on what college students were doing as far as intimacy goes. So, you know, there's a famous book from, I want to say it's 2008 or 2009, that was called Hooking Up Mm. um, by a sociologist named Kathleen Bogle. And her book wasn't specifically about millennials, but because, you know, of the the age range that was studied, the people in that age group, I think more or less did classify as millennials. Mm. Um, And, you know, there's, there's other work and other books too, that were kind of on a similar topic right so it was looking at what are college students doing are they what what is hooking up how do we make sense of this uh you know is this different from what previous generations have done and so I was working with my uh, at the, at the time my academic advisor on some research that was kind of in that in that lane, uh, and we in the in the course of that project we realized you know there's a lot of interest and a lot of work being done on college students um, you know for for a variety of different reasons you know a because that's just an interesting age range to study you know that sort of eighteen to twenty two age um, very interesting but also b because they're pretty accessible you know if you're working in an academic setting, Mm -hmm. you know, college students are all around. But, you know, that being said, we were, we sort of stopped and, and we're thinking, you know, we have all of this data coming up on college students. And besides that, we also have data on, on married couples and, you know, what people do in intimacy, once they get to that sort of full adult stage, you know, once they settle down, so to speak, once they um, have kids. So, you know, research like the second shift, which you may have heard of, right? So how do uh, families kind of divide domestic labor and, mm-hmm. you know, make sense of men's and women's roles and things like that. But what we noticed that was really missing was research on that sort of in-between stage, right? So, you know, what happens to young adults when they're past that so sort of college age range, right? When they're sort of in their mid to late twenties, but before they're um, necessarily, you know, settled down, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Right. And so because, and because of the time we, so we decided to embark upon this project uh, which eventually became my project and my book. And so at the time when, I started interviewing people. It, it originally wasn't necessarily a project on millennials. It was on that age range. Mm. But, you know, upon reflection, once I gathered my data or, you know, in the thick of gathering my data, I realized that everybody I'm interviewing falls in this millennial age range category. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so, you know, the original goal was really to kind of capture that. What are people up to in their sort of 20s and early 30s before, mm-hmm. you know, they're getting married, before they're having kids or before they're deciding um, they don't want to do those things or what, you know, their adult intimate lives are going to look like? What are they doing in that in that in between time? And again, because it was a study happening at a particular point in time, um, you know, I was doing this research in the, the sort of 2010s, um, mm-hmm. started actually in the early 2010s, and then the book was published in 2021. So almost a decade, you know, it became a book about millennials, because
0: mm. that's
1: where all of these people were falling as far as their um, age identity,
0: right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, there are multiple interesting things about the kind of bookends you identified. Of we we know a fair amount about college students, you know, having talked to a couple of other political scientists and sociologists. One of the reasons we know so much about college students is they're in ready supply for academics. <laughs> the undergrads <laughs> are right. there and can be incentivized. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And then I think what's interesting, as you say, about people who are into that kind of marker of adulthood of of marriage, the interesting thing there is it feels more like. More economics oriented. It's it's very like divisions of labor, and mm-hmm. it, it still doesn't feel like we know that much about like the sexual lives of married people, but we uh, or the intimate lives of them. But we know about like you know division of labor around parenting and housework and work work and all the rest of that. So this is very interesting. How did you then go about? sort of designing a method for finding people that are not just like hanging out in the halls (laughs) and also are not in these kind of, you know, econometrics focused um, studies? How how did you go about um, designing your your method?
1: Initially, my project started as sort of a a side quest, if you will. <laughs> so I was working on a few different things. And, you know, going back to what I meant, how I mentioned before, you know, my advisor and I were kind of interested in this age range, we were still doing, we were actually in that camp of doing research on college students. Mm-hmm. But um, I was like, you know, I'm going to do this little side quest and see if I can recruit some older people. Uh, and so because I am a millennial, I actually was able to sort of start with my social group. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I did what we call in, uh, in social science, snowball sampling. So basically, I would kind of just put the feelers out to people I knew, right? Like, oh, you know, here's people I know in this millennial age range. Do you all know anybody who might be interested in talking with me about this topic, right? And so then I, I kind of solicited or elicited um, interest in that way because. I wasn't quite sure what to expect, but, and I'm not saying this is the case for everybody, but surprisingly, I found that, um, people were really interested in this topic. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I did get, I did get to a fair amount of interest from, you know, just putting the feelers out. Uh, and then once I sort of did, I I kind of call that my, the sort of pilot phase of the study. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then once I finished that, I was able to kind of expand that a little bit and I actually ended up going back to kind of circling back to something we mentioned earlier, I actually ended up advertising online Hmm. to see um, if I could uh, gather more participants in the area. Mm. And I didn't. So my study, uh, it is a qualitative study. And, you know, nowadays, I think the technology is, you know, especially post COVID, right? You know, technology has really impressed me. (laughs) And even just us talking today, right? It's really easy to do. Um, a face-to-face interview without being necessarily face-to-face. But at the time, I kind of experimented with doing that a little bit and wasn't satisfied with the result. And so I ended up I was sort of confined to a specific geographical area mm-hmm. in the Mountain West U.S. And so, you know, the, the views that I gathered do represent, you know, they're not necessarily representative of like millennials on the East Coast, for example, sure. or, you know, millennials in the South. Um, you know, these were people in a very specific area. But, yeah, I advertised online and I was able to get people to sort of meet me face to face Um at a location of their choosing, you know, wherever they felt comfortable. Uh, and yeah, I, that's really mostly how I gathered my participants. I also, you know, once I, uh, in that sort of second phase, when the study got more, uh, more official, I suppose, <laughs> I was able to do some snowballing there as well, you know. Um, so if people knew people that they thought would be interested, I gave them my contact info so they could get in touch with me. And um, yeah, you know, overall, it was really a fascinating experience because, again, I wasn't sure what to expect because I think it's a lot to ask people to talk about their intimate lives and, you know, if they want to get into it, their sex lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, my interviews mostly focused on intimacy sort of more broadly. So not necessarily, you know, I didn't really ask them invasive questions about their sex lives, but if mm-hmm. they wanted to get into it a little bit, you know, I kind of I allowed them to go... There, within reason, sure. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I did sort of an open-ended um, strategy with my uh, with my interviews, but um, yeah, you know, most people were extremely open, mm-hmm. um, and they, you know, some people, it's a little bit for some, in some cases, it was a little bit like a therapy session. I think yeah. you know, people <laughs> had things they wanted to talk about and they wanted to get off their chest, and you know, a couple people told me afterwards, like, oh, this is this is such a great conversation, yeah. and you know, I loved. Um, I loved this interview. I got to do more interviews. And so <laughs> Yeah. So it was a, you know, it was, it was really encouraging in that mm-hmm. sense that, you know, people were really, really were opening up. And I do think there's something to be said for me being, you know, kind of a, an anonymous source, right. Yes. Because, you know, everybody that I interviewed their, their identities are protected, right. Mm-hmm. You know, they all have, everybody in the book has a pseudonym. Um, and I would change things here and there so that you can't link their, story back to them, you know, <laughs> in the off chance that you would know these people anyway. Right. <laughs> but um, yeah, so, so there, I think there is something to that where, you know, if people understand that this is a confidential interview, then they're willing to open up and, and say things that, you know, they might not say necessarily if their name was going to be attached right. to it. So. Yeah.
0: I yeah. mean, as a qualitative researcher myself, I, I find that it never stops surprising me Many years into this work, um, how candid people are willing to be about really hard topics Mm -hmm. and and really kind of personal things. Um, It it almost seems like this is going to be an overstatement, but it it has seemed over the years like the the more personal, the more fraught, the more... um, the more kind of exposure to potential exposure to shame um a topic carries, the more candid people become. Like they're uh-huh. they need a place to get it off their chests. And and someone right. who's like I think it's even different than talking to a therapist where like you're going to a therapist for help. You're not coming to me for help. You're just telling your story. And that might be beneficial, but like that's it's a completely like frictionless space it's just mm-hmm. um it's fascinating it must have been a lot of fun doing the work were there any things that you whether you consciously walked into it thinking you had an expectation of what people were going to tell you or not was there anything that kind of uh, surprised you or seemed like You just weren't expecting to hear people talk about these things in this way.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So some things weren't so surprising to me. You know, I think going into it for for example, you know, the way that I divide my book is I I kind of center one identity category, Mm -hmm. and then I I try to look, if 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 applicable, I look at sort of the intersections um, of different identities with that category. So for example, like one chapter centers gender. And then I, you know, throughout that chapter, I also discuss whether or not there's, um, if, for example, like sexual identity impacts how Mm -hmm. millennials are talking about gender. But that being said, you know, I had done some previous work on gender as a a gender sociologist. And so some of the stories that I was hearing from women and men weren't so surprising. (laughs) I I kind of expected that, you know, make a long story short, you know, one of the things I find in the gender chapter is that the stories women and men are telling, uh, especially uh, straight uh, or heterosexual women and men, Mm -hmm. you know, the stories that they're telling about their experiences in relationships, they they sort of, in a lot of cases, unfortunately, kind of help justify or shore up some of those gender inequalities and gender issues mm-hmm. that we know from previous research already exist. Uh, so, you know, there are things like that that weren't so surprising, but there were other categories that I think there's less research on that mm-hmm. was a little more surprising to me. So, you know, for example, uh, one of the chapters centers social class. So basically, you know, I'm looking at uh, how do discussions of social class figure in these millennial stories about their relationships? And honestly, I was pretty surprised because and, and I'm, I'm thinking about it, too, in contrast to race. Uh, you know, when millennials were talking about race and ethnicity, especially I, millennials who identified as as white, uh, you know, they were pretty careful stepping around how they talked about race. You know, they didn't want to appear like they would say anything that could be construed as racist. They wanted to be sensitive about the topic. Um, but when they talked about class, uh, they were much more. Um, I guess you could say brutal in how they approached class, especially millennials who were kind of coming from more of a privileged uh, class Hmm. background or those who maybe weren't from sort of an affluent background to begin with, but that was something that they had as a goal for themselves. Mm -hmm. The millennials that I talked to, and again, I don't, I don't necessarily know if this is unique to them. I, and we can talk about this Mm -hmm. later. I don't think it is, but um, I was surprised with, the sort of hard and fast boundaries that some of the participants set up. You know, um, you know, for example, you know, there's one person I talked to in the book, his pseudonym is Oscar. And, you know, he comes from a, a background that, you know, he told me when he was growing up, his family really sort of oscillated between Poverty and uh, lower middle class. Hmm. So they really had a hard time kind of getting a foothold into the middle class and arguably never really did. But as a sort of coming of age adult, he was able to get a college education, move away from his hometown Uh, sort of get a foothold in a professional middle class career path. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when he was talking about social class and his expectations for partners, you know, he was a little bit unforgiving in terms of his expectations, right? You know, Mm -hmm. he and a lot of people that I talked to, you know, this was kind of the common thing. They would use this sort of class coded language, right? So they would say things like, oh, you know, I expect a partner to value education and to get an education, right? Mm -hmm. With the sort of unstated, the part that was left unsaid was that, oh, you know, people who are who are not on this sort of class advantaged path don't value education, which mm, you know mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think is yeah that's not really the whole truth, mm-hmm. right? It, it, there's a lot of um, issues with resources, and I mean it's just a whole. There's a lot I could say about that, but it, it was interesting to me that some of the people I talked to, you know, they didn't mince words as far as what their expectations for class were, uh, and it, I think it's just because. Even, even just going back to kind of contrasting it with race, you know, I think, especially for millennials, there's been more discussion. And there's been sort of, even when you just look at uh, sort of the media that we've consumed growing up, right? Like, I, I remember growing up, you know, sitcoms and things like that would occasionally deal with issues of race. And I mean, it's a, this, it's another whole thing we could get into. But you know, a lot of times it was the colorblind approach that would be taken, right? right. Like this idea that race, matters, but it shouldn't matter. And maybe if we pretend it's not there, we can all live in e- equality happily. right? <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I feel like the conversations around social class didn't have, and this is just, you know, thinking about my, my upbringing, I didn't see those happening as much. And I'm guessing that for the people I interviewed, that also was not always the case. And so, you know, that we didn't get those messages that, Oh, you know, this is a nuanced thing that, um, you know, it's not all about your personal, uh, you know, will to succeed or however you want to mm. put it that, you know, determines what social class standing you're going to have. But there's all these sort of structural advantages and disadvantages that go into where people ultimately end up. And so I did think that was kind of interesting that, I you know, again, I, I'm not sure what I expected, but I didn't expect them to be so open about their feelings on social class, I guess.
0: That is super interesting. And it is something that, that stands out in the book. As people mm-hmm. talk about the types of, I mean, it, it comes up in um, in the uh, the chap I was just revisiting the chapter on age because I was looking for something specific um, for a totally different mm-hmm. thing. But like, um, mm-hmm. I even think about the kind of I've come to think of it as like the Josh Hawley formulation of what manhood is supposed to be, which is this like you get married, you have children, you buy a house, and that makes you a Republican. Um, <laughs> but like, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I guess ideally, that's that's the that's the ladder to conservatism, and it's a very interesting order of operations and it does not seem to be the order of operations that in particular, the straight men in your, um, in your study are talking about. They want to feel more financially sure footed before they enter into a marriage. It's not right. marriage as a route to financial security. It's the other way around financial security as a, not a route to marriage, but a, as a, a precursor to marriage. Right, And that, that seemed kind of true regardless of their class background that, that, I don't know, that like marriage is an expense and, um, and they need to be able to afford it in some kind of meaningful way.
1: Right. Yeah. And I also I think what I saw with a lot of the men as well is it's kind of that intersecting of expectations around what what their expectations are as far as getting married and that um, expectation that they are going to have those sort of exploratory you know, sexual mm-hmm. relationship exploratory years. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that that was an interesting thing as well. And I did see, you know, go, going back to class, I, I did see that among the people, at least among the people that I interviewed, you know, with, with the men, they did have that sense that we, I should be financially secure before I enter into a marriage. You know, that was a pretty strong story, like you said, among mm-hmm. everybody. Um, but then kind of going back to something that I just mentioned, you know, well, what I really saw in their stories is the reality of their conditions really impacted what that ultimately looked like, right? So for the men who were on sort of a class advantage trajectory, or who already were coming from a class advantage background, they were sort of willing to, uh, or they were, they were pretty adamant that they needed to wait, right? Like, I am absolutely not getting married until I, you know, build up my savings mm-hmm. or, you know, I'm absolutely not doing this until I can get a footing in this career that I want to get a footing in. But for, for the men who were on, what I call in the book, a, a sort of class disadvantaged trajectory, or, you know, in, in my case, I didn't actually interview anybody who was downwardly mobile. Mm-hmm. So everybody I interviewed who was on that path was already coming from a, um, a sort of poor or working class background already, mm-hmm. you know, for those men, it was, it was kind of heartbreaking in a way, because they would, they, a lot of them told stories of kind of trying to get a foothold mm. in, you know, saving or in a career path or an education. But just because of the challenges that come with Coming from a poor or uh, lower middle class or working class background, they ran up into roadblocks, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking of one of the participants who, you know, he he entered college at one point and then he had to drop out for financial reasons. Um, kind of tried to do a few different things and then he ended up. His girlfriend ended up pregnant and you know he mm-hmm. kind of came to this realization of. I'm blanking on the pseudonym I use for him uh, right now, but I think it's, and I forget what chapter it's in, but I I think it's in the marriage chapter where he's talking about how, you know, I used to have this idea that I had to wait for marriage and I had to do these things, but, ultimately where I'm at right now is I just have to live my life. Right. You know, he, he was like, I have a daughter, I have a fiance and um, I've kind of put that behind mm. me, you know, that as far as that, like, I have to accomplish all of these things before, uh, before I entered into this agreement. So, you know, what I saw was that it was really, you know, people do what they can with the resources that are available to them. Right. right. And so for, for men who didn't have, those resources, they kind of had to rethink a little bit what that trajectory looked like for them.
0: Uh, yeah. And I think th- this is one of the things that has been particularly inter- of interest to us as we look at far lazier <laughs> um, characterizations of millennials is that lurking underneath those characterizations is typically an assumption about, frankly, uh, American or Anglo speaking countryness, whiteness, an upward trajectory from a class perspective or starting from class advantaged, and then not really thinking about anybody who is not college bound or college educated. And so Mm -hmm. it's interesting in thinking about what you were just talking about against some of the, I know that um, Anne Case and Angus, I'm going to forget his last name, but they wrote the book about Deaths of Despair. They are really emphasizing right now in their work this line of distinction between people who have a bachelor's degree and people who don't, and that mm-hmm. that bachelor's degree seems to be correlated with, among other things, higher uh, total life expectancies, marriage rates, you know, all of these you know and and just kind of lower rates of addiction general overall health obviously that's reflected in the mortality rates but it's very like in, in a way like that's a that's a really compelling line of demarcation It cannot be like the thing where like, and so the answer is everyone should get a college degree
1: right? because the
0: the fact of not having the college degree is inflected by all of these other class, largely class defined um, Mm -hmm. obstacles or incentives. And I think that's, it's a really interesting thing to think about given how worried certain public figures are at the moment about the state of young men in particular, but um, kind of the state of men in America (laughs) in general.
1: Right. And I, well, I think, you know, I think the bigger thing is that in the United States, we really don't have the safety net that they have in other mm-hmm. industrialized Western nations, right? You know, it's, you know, when you look at, uh, and I mean, I'm just thinking too, of extrapolating this to something like childcare, mm-hmm. you know, in other countries, they subsidize childcare, right? right. But in the United States, we have women most of the time or a caregiver, you know, mm-hmm. or it's a, it's an individual solution. You know, if you have a child and you want to work, then you either have to have family or someone else who's willing to care for them for free, or you have to put them in daycare, which is costly and cost prohibitive mm-hmm. for many, many families. Right. right. Um, and I think, you know, it's the same thing or kind of linking back to what you were saying, you know, it's a, it's just that in the U S we, we do you know, culturally, we are a a, a nation that values individualism, right? Mm-hmm. And increasingly, you know, neoliberalism is working its way through, uh <laughs> yes. you know, through all facets of our society. And, you know, we don't have that safety net. And for millennials, and, you know, for, for everyone else as well, individuals kind of have to take care of themselves, mm-hmm. right? Because, and that's where class becomes really important. Because, you know, if you are from, um an advantaged background, or you do have those connections that can help you out if, you know, something happens, mm-hmm. if you get sick or lose a job or something like that, you know, you can get back on your feet. But if you don't have those connections and resources, then, you know, something very small can turn catastrophic very quickly, right? right? You know, if you lose a job, and you don't have savings, you know, that can snowball into losing your housing, losing um a, a lot of different things. And so I think, yeah, it, it just it goes back to that issue of we don't really have the safety net, mm-hmm. right? And so that that and that influences how people kind of think about their lives. And I also, you know, even just going back to something like the stories of the men who were so so sort of anxious really about achieving that economic stability, you know, part of that is gendered. Uh you mm-hmm. know, it is that there are these sort of stayed expectations that men are going to be the the breadwinners even even if women are working interestingly but you know if you think about it 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 kind of makes sense because you know we don't have that safety net in place it you know, men are going to be anxious about that. And again, you know, if, if you want to have a, you know, and this is assuming sort of a, a sort of stereotypical heterosexual two-parent family, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to have that set up, which is what a lot of the heterosexual men I interviewed, that was the goal of most, if not all of them, uh, you know, the expectation or the, the sort of fear was that, you know, if they did have kids, well, then, someone's going to have to take care of those kids or, you know, we're going to have to figure something out. Um, and then I'm going to have to be the one who's sort of the main breadwinner. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, in a, in a way, the sort of lack of safety net and this sort of fear around the uncertainty, I think is what is helping sort of perpetuate some of these old ideas and stereotypes around things like gender and gender mm-hmm. roles that, um, you know, a lot of us would like to see challenged more, but that, it seems like once we do one step forward, we do two steps back, right? Yeah,
0: that, that was something else that was fascinating in in reading the book is because I, I do think we have, because we have these things that Bureau of Labor Statistics tracks or, or whatever, and you know, it's kind of actuarial um, data about marriage, birth rates, when people start having oh. children, those kinds of things, income. I, I think there is a way to explain delayed marriage, delayed parenthood, as being, you know, there's certainly pockets uh, who want to explain that as being a product of feminism, for example. Mm-hmm. And w- so, what struck me reading the book was how incremental <laughs> any gains attached to feminism might be and how, how really entrenched these kind of traditional gender role ideas are and that Mm -hmm. you know again i think one of the things that is so great about the book is its attention to these intersections because it can't all just be chopped up and said like okay here's the gender thing all right set aside the gender thing now here's the class thing because gender and class gender and class and race all of these things wind up playing off of each other and creating the conditions for the outcomes that we're seeing but it did Mm -hmm. i have to say even though I don't really i'm I'm very much an ever was kind of thinker like things don't change that quickly is is my experience it is it was still surprising to me how entrenched some fair you know some things that we would say in the pages of The Atlantic or the New Yorker or whatever are outdated gender ideas mm-hmm. being reified and and if, if, even if not like um i don't know espoused certainly accepted and I'm curious about whether that surprised you or whether, I mean, it sounds like you have some previous work in gender, so maybe it didn't.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, thinking about gender, you know, it, it didn't really surprise me. And I guess going back to what you mentioned before, I, you know, one, one sort of glimmer of hope Mm. that I found in talking about gender is the queer participants in particular. Mm -hmm. So the LGBT, and I had, I had a fair number who did self-identify their sexual identity as queer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm just so I'm using the word queer thinking about like, queer critiques of gender and marriage and things like that. And so, you know, the participants who were self-identifying that way, they really did, you know, it wasn't about sexuality. It was also about queering gender mm-hmm. in their relationships. Right. And so there was, there was kind of a glimmer of hope there in that, um, you know, I really found that queer folks were doing this sort of uh, in their relationships, they were kind of putting in the effort to ex- explicitly challenge gender expectations and try to fight against them the the sort of downside or not the downside but the sort of unfortunate um but and um, to that is that even though they were challenging gender there were some power dynamics that came up in in different ways Mm -hmm. right so you know things like age you know there were uh even if gender was being challenged in some of their relationship stories there were clear sort of power dynamics and awkwardness around age that came mm-hmm. up. So it is, and I do. And I mean, th- thank you for saying uh, nice things about <laughs> the book, but you know, I, I also think that one of the things that is beneficial to taking this sort of intersectional approach is that you, even though it was a little, a, a little, you know, it's much easier to kind of compartmentalize. So, you know, it's a little more challenging to try to look at the intersection sometimes, but um, you know, one of the benefits to taking that approach is that you, you can see that, oh, you know, things might be going well in this area, but here's this other area where maybe things can be Mm -hmm. improved a little bit. So, so yeah, I do, you know, I do think that the taking kind of a queer approach to gender is, is a hope. The only, the, the sad thing about that though, is that I do think, you know, there's a lot of folks who are, uh, you know, especially if you take like a gender class in, in college, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or if you go explicitly go out of your way to read and research the, um, these topics, you know, there's this information is out there and available for people. But the downside is that I don't think the average person seeks that information mm-hmm. out, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, I kind of had to do a little self-reflection too, because as a sociologist and a gender sociologist, I, at the time I was doing these interviews, was really embedded in this literature and sort of surrounded by, you know, other people in my cohort who were embedded in this literature mm-hmm. and, um, you know, explicitly trying to take queer approaches to gender in their lives, whether or not they identified as queer. But, you know, doing these interviews was really a reminder that, oh, you know, the average person isn't exposed to this information. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and, and where I did my interviews, I think we can categorize it as an area of the country that is pretty progressive on things like gender. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if, if folks that I interviewed were not, you know, did not know this information, then I think that it's pretty safe to say that that it's probably the case in most of the country as well, that, you know, this isn't something that's kind of common parlance or, you know, it's not like everybody is familiar with um, queer approaches to gender. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, it gives me hope, but at the same time I do think uh you know, unfortunately, the broader pattern is trending more towards despite all the progress that we have made. And there has been progress. Um, you know, we still have a ways to go as far as um, the average person and how they approach gender in their lives. Yeah. And you know, I don't know if I'm, I'm skipping ahead or soapboxing a little too much. But this is this is the reason why I think and you know, this is in the conclusion as well. This is the reason why I think policy is really important, because I think policy sets the precedent, right? So, you know, and I I give this example, and I I know I've mentioned this earlier in our discussion, but I I keep turning to it, because I feel like it's such an obvious example of what we can do now to make things better. So something like parental leave, right? So, you know, there's been a lot of discussions. It, I feel like it's something that kind of comes up on and off in the news every once in a while, you know, we, we, we come back to it and then, you know, it goes away and then it comes back sort of cyclical. But, you know, these discussions around maternity leave and, you know, federally supported um, um, leave, it's, it's good, you know, on the one hand, it's like, okay, I, I think it's good that, you know, we want to mandate maternity leave. But if we don't set that up as parental leave, Mm. then that excludes a whole group of people who, you know, are contributing to the birth or adoption of a new child, but who, you know, aren't having the time to, you know, aren't getting time off of work to bond with that child and to help with the parenting. And if we're just focusing on maternity leave, in a sense, that kind of re-entrenches the inequalities that we're trying to challenge, right? right? Because that sort of sends the message that, Oh, this is a woman's thing and not just a women's thing, but a cisgender women's thing, right? You know, it's the cisgender women who are giving birth. They can have maternity leave, but everyone else kind of has to, you know, scrap together their vacation or whatever else they might have available if they want to take time off. And so, you know, that's just something that, you know, changing that conversation from, well, number one, supporting leave. Uh, right. <laughs> but number two, changing that conversation from maternity leave to parental leave, that can influence how people think about how they're going to structure their intimate lives when a child arrives, mm-hmm. right? And that's something that, to me, it's something that, you know, it's a pretty simple thing that we can do, but not going about it the right way, or, you know, just kind of staying in the situation we're currently in, which is not
0: yeah. good,
1: in my opinion. <laughs> okay. um, you know, that's just going to reentrench the issues that we that we're trying to, trying to address. Right. Right.
0: I mean, I think that's, it's such an interesting, two things came into my head as you were talking about that. One is the reaction to Pete Buttigieg taking parental leave. And, Mm -hmm. you know, from the right in particular, this kind of like, what does he need parental leave for? He's like, and and it was Mm -hmm. like, to your point, it is a cisgendered Feminine responsibility. And in, so right. therefore, in a gay couple, what neither of them should take parental, who's, who's staying home with this right. baby? Yeah. Like, uh, what are we talking about here? But it is, it is so gendered and so heteronormative, that it, um, I, you know, that, that is a really interesting observation. But the other part of it is, you do see there's a paper out in a law journal that I have not read yet. And I can't remember the title of it. But it is basically making the argument that when we change the legal regimes around things, then acceptance of those things changes. So, you mm-hmm. know, Obergefell yields the result of people being more accepting of gay marriage. And right. Lawrence yields the acceptance of gay relationships and certainly the rejection of the idea that the cops should be able to bust down your door because somebody called the cops on you for having sex with someone of the same gender. Right. And so those those policy decisions, those rulings have real impact on kind of creating socially accepted permission structures for people to do different things. Right. And I think it's also really interesting what you were saying before about the kind of phenomenon of queering gender, because I think that there's a lot there that's just about like a deliberate decision to try to go against all the grains that are just rubbing up against us all the time. And it's right. hard work. And I think, can you know, can even have the, the result of people who do not, who might not have previously identified as queer, who are like, but I have committed to this approach to thinking about oh. gender and gender dynamics, and so I will go ahead and identify this way now because I'm all in on on this approach. It it is still a very small group of people. It would be nice if it were, uh, you know, something we could have broader conversations about. Oh. I, I think the the policy piece of this is is interesting as well because as you were talking, one of the things I especially on the class subject that I think is always missing from the millennial narrative because, like I said, we we always kind of default to thinking about. College educated, urban, upperly mobile millennials, typically white. And that is that, like, you know, I, I think there have been periods in this country where we're more class conscious and less. And I think there was a period there where, you know, you had both kind of affordable prices on things. You, interestingly, you had like affordable prices on things, relative job security, and employer backed pension systems as a social safety net, plus a growing social safety net. And High tax rates, guys. High tax rates. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and yet people were really upwardly mobile. It was a big economic boom out of the baby boom, <laughs> you know, out, out of that period is the baby boom generation born. Um, so maybe right. it's really good for birth rates too. If you're, if you're anxious about those things. And then we kind of slide into like, okay, pensions basically go away, but prices remain okay. And so you can still have a nice enough middle class life. For you and your children, without a college education, or you know, without without a job that's going to lead to a pension, because housing is still affordable and commodities prices are still affordable, and I think the thing that has changed for millennials and changed around that 2008 period, but but before that, really around 2000, is that that ended right. There's the social safety net gets squeezed, pensions are long gone, job security. No, we have a gig economy now, and so all of these, you know, there are policy choices. I mean, (laughs) one of the other things that kind of blew my mind was the expansion of child welfare in 1984. They consciously made a choice in Congress to only start those benefits for kids who were born on or after 1982. And so they basically said to all of those kids that were still children in 1984, oh, I'm sorry, you were born in 1978. And so we don't care about you. We're, We're writing you off. And all of these things have policy implication these policy implications have real-world impacts for the people who are living with it and I do wonder if that's part of the the overall story is you can't kind of ignore the class dynamics anymore there have right. been periods where we could and periods where we couldn't and we're right now in a period where you can't and so maybe that's also why people are so willing to speak candidly on the mm-hmm. high end and the low end of the income ladders about about how class affects their lives it's just in your face all the time.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think it's too, to your point, it, it, I think it's probably has to do with anxiety as well. Right. That just sort of, you know, and I'm just thinking about, since we're talking about the, the class part of the, research. And I'm just thinking back to the interviews now. And, you know, there was palpable anxiety in those Mm -hmm. interviews. Yes. (laughs) You know, especially in the men's interviews. I think it was in everybody's interviews, Mm -hmm. but especially the, you know, the cisgender men, you know, I mean, they had an extreme amount of class anxiety. (laughs) And, you know, they really did feel like, oh, you know, this is going to be on me mm-hmm. that, you know, not only am I, again, intersecting with gender, you know, not only am I going to be supporting myself, but, you know, if I have um, a partner and kids and, mm-hmm. you know, any other dependents that I have to make sure that I'm kind of in a position where we can, we have enough to get by. Yeah. Right. Um, and I do think that, you know, that's, that's something that I, I kind of wonder what the future will look like. And, and now I'm thinking it would be interesting to kind of replicate this study with Gen Z mm-hmm. and see how they talk mm-hmm. about it, right? Because, yeah, you know, I for millennials, I I don't know if I see that changing. Uh, you know, I I think if I were to replicate, you know, if I were to talk to these same millennials or other millennials today, I suspect that the narrative even though, you know, we've got all this, you know, the world has changed in even the last five mm-hmm. years. I suspect that their stories around social class in particular would be similar to what they were, mm-hmm. you know, a handful of years ago when I talked to them. And I do, you know, I think if anything, it's probably actually just gotten worse, right? Like the anxieties. <laughs> it you know, feels that way. And they, I mean, we might even spend more time talking about class just because I think it has been in the news more and yeah. has been sort of on people's minds more. Um, especially in the last few years, I think, I don't know, maybe it was the pandemic effect that, uh, you know, just the impact that that had on jobs and on people's lives mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the, the sort of uh, emergency safety net measures that were put in place because of the pandemic and that are now going away. Mm-hmm. Again, I think it's something that's not really going away. And I think it would be interesting because I do think there's more, there's more discussion now around class than mm-hmm. even a few years ago, and especially compared to, when millennials were, were sort of coming of age and in their sort yeah. of early 20s and going in there. But yeah, I mean, I know that being said, you know, there's more discussion, but I don't think things
0: have improved. No, right? no, no. <laughs> no. I think anxiety, so, anxiety is here to stay. Yeah. Is what it feels yeah, like. So, yeah. 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 I, I did want to ask you about one one thing. And, and it's, it, it is a thing that I felt was there and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And I see it in some of the work I do as well. So I I just wanted to see if you had any insight into this. And that was that there also seemed to be something different happening amongst women of color in their approach to intimate relationships as opposed to white women. Mm -hmm. And that there's, I don't know, there are threads of being a bit more skeptical, a bit more conscious of power dynamics and and control Mm -hmm. of being more protective of themselves in a in a really kind of consciously defined way. We we've seen this in some. We did some work recently with um, expectant mothers, was pregnant people, and um, mm-hmm. and there was a lot more of that conversation. We we did a little um, Vox Pop exercise around this question of intimacy and relationships, and um, mm-hmm. the people most likely to say, "I want to make sure that." in in the kind of cliche parlance like I have my mask firmly attached to my face before I start dealing with anybody else's stuff like I want to make sure I'm in a good place before I bring someone else into this that that was way more pronounced coming from women of color and and again tiny you know these are qualitative Mm -hmm. studies always but I'm just curious if you observed that if you saw anything else interesting happening amongst particularly women of color in terms of their approach to, to intimate relationships
1: yeah, you know, I think, I, I think they were definitely the ones that I interviewed. I think definitely had a different approach and definitely had different experiences mm-hmm. than the white women. Um, I think the difference is just that, well, I think there's a, there's a gender dynamic too, right? Cause, you know, the, the stories that men of color and women of color told me were a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And I think it has to do with gender. But, you know, ultimately women of color were really on the receiving end of not to mince words, racist actions on behalf of the people that they mm-hmm. dated. Right. Uh, and it was just, uh, you know, it was, it was pretty disheartening because it was just, you know, story after story of these experiences that they had that were hurtful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it's hard. It's hard to parse out. You can't really parse out whether somebody, whether their partners are being intentional or unintentional. Right. And even if they say they're being unintentional, mm-hmm. It could actually be intentional yeah. until they get caught and then they claim it's intentional, <laughs> right? And so I think that it's just having experiences like that over and over again, I think that that just impacts how mm-hmm. you approach relationships and how you think of them, right? Uh, so, you know, just one example, uh, I, you know, multiple women talk to me about being worried about being like, a dating experiment for, yes. um, for partners. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, are they dating me because they're interested in me or are they dating me because they've always wanted to date somebody who is, you know, Hispanic or who is black or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. And, and a lot of time, I mean, this is, I think mostly they were talking about white partners in these contexts, but th- it can happen in other cases as well. Right. You know, I did have, you know, like one Hispanic man who I interviewed who, you know, was talking about dating Black women and how, you know, the other people he knows think about Black women and how they kind of characterize Mm -hmm. them as sort of different sorts of people based on race, right? Right. So white women have the benefit, you know, even though they have issues too, they do have the benefit of not having to deal with the feeling that people want to date them because of their race or their ethnicity, right? Right. I mean, at least in the people I interviewed, that didn't really cross their minds. You know, it was all about, how they were approaching men who might not be white or who might mm. be of some race or ethnicity <laughs> that they thought was different or exotic right but when we're looking <laughs> at the women or you know talking to the women they're on the receiving end of that right. you know and i do think i think the men had more to say but i think that uh, or i suspect that they did but you know again the data that i have is just what they tell sure. me and so you know a lot of the men in the interviews they talked about the men of color they talked about race being important or significant, but at the end of the day, you know, they they kind of portrayed themselves as, yeah, but I can handle it, you know, it's right. it's fine. Whereas the women I think were much more forthcoming about, no, you know, this was actually a hurtful experience that I had. And unfortunately, it, it, at the end of the day, it, instead of um, you know, it, I guess it's not their uh, place to necessarily educate those partners. And also, even if they tried to, I suspect that mm-hmm. the partners probably wouldn't respond well, right? Or, you know, and you can, you can see it from some of the other stories that are in the chapter, right? Like people will kind of get defensive and be like, Oh, you know, it wasn't really, you're making it about race, but it wasn't actually about race. Like it's, you know, it's not like right. that, you know, and so women of color are really in this hard position where they're on the receiving end of this hurtful treatment, but they also, you know, and I don't, I don't, I don't blame them, you know, there's not really an easy recourse to, Mm -hmm. to sort of addressing the situation, either because they've tried to and partners have been defensive, or they suspect based on their past experiences, that people are not going to take it Mm -hmm. well, if they do bring something up. And yeah, so they're kind of so you know, that's what they're dealing with. And so I think that just dealing with those experiences, just that impacts how you approach relationships going forward. And you know, I kind of saw that, You know, it was some of the some of the women who were talking to me about sort of their future plans, right? Like they it clearly impacted their their past experiences clearly impacted how they saw themselves moving forward. Mm -hmm. And I do think, you know, as you mentioned, that it does kind of create sort of a sort of an awareness, right? Of, you know, I have to be sort of a little more on guard to Mm -hmm. protect myself from being hurt essentially, right. and that's something that you know the white women I interviewed again, you know, it wasn't even something that they had to think about at mm-hmm. all. Uh, and so, so yeah, I think you know race matters, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, it's it's interesting too because you know with the topic of, of race and ethnicity and these sort of racial interracial relationships, um, it's something that we want to think, especially in intimacy, we want to believe and we want to think that you know love can conquer all and that race doesn't matter and that we can be colorblind but um you know at the end of the day uh, that colorblind argument instead of helping actually hurts right mm-hmm. i think what it what it does especially for for white folks in particular is that it just it sends the message that race shouldn't matter therefore if we bring up race then we're you know making it matter and that's where we don't want to go but actually you know being silent about it is the thing that perpetuates some of the issues that we yeah.
0: see. Yeah. It's it's really interesting yeah. to think about that too from a couple of perspectives. And and one is we were, I don't know if we've talked about this on the show or not, but I, I had recently asked Mid Journey to generate images of a millennial couple sitting together listening to a podcast. It was just sort of a joke. And mm-hmm. but like two or three out of the four images that Mid Journey created had mixed race couples. And mm-hmm. it's becoming incredibly common now in marketing to portray mixed race couples and mixed race families, even though it's still you know relatively rare to have you know mixed race families. This is of, of mm-hmm. course the degree to which we have a lot of mixed race children who are millennials has a lot to do with Loving versus Virginia <laughs> legalizing it. Right. But you know you, you never see behind the like the behind the scenes <laughs> right of, of these these portrayals. You know occasionally you, you do in in television or movies or that sort of thing, but like in the commercial for the Cheerios family, like you, you don't know what it took to get here <laughs> and, mm-hmm. um, and how hard that was to, to accomplish. It's just sort of taken as this fate accompli. And it's, it's, part of what I think was important about taking a look um, at, at the work that you've done is digging underneath all of these different elements as opposed to just sort of saying age group and like all the people bet- born between this year and this year and they have these tendencies or they over index on these qualities and so therefore everything's different and I think there were kind of two things for me with with the book and one was the importance of how all of these different factors intersect with one another and how people negotiate those intersections to figure out what they want in a relationship, what they want in a partner, how they want to engage in intimate relationships. And yes, absolutely the importance of policy choices. <laughs> right. If there was a, if there was like a, a takeaway that you want people who, who come across your book to have is, is, I mean, there are probably many, but is there like a, a main <laughs> thing that you, you hope people walk away from the book experiencing?
1: Yeah. Well, if I can cheat, I actually think there's two sure, things yeah. that I would say. So the first thing that I think kind of situating it within this um, this discussion of generations, I think an important takeaway is the fact, well, I'm going to say the fact that it was a strong sure. word, but I feel like other research backs me up mm-hmm. on this. So the fact that millennials maybe aren't so different from other generations as we like to think that they mm-hmm. are, right? So um you know, a lot of the things that I saw millennials discussing, a lot of the goals that they had for their lives were similar to what we see on research on Gen Xers or on baby boomers, right? And, you know, that being said, I think there's also sort of a knee jerk reaction to, and, you know, I think this happens with every generation that comes up, right? We kind of put all of our hopes and dreams on the young people. Yeah. Like, oh, they're going to save us. They're <laughs> going to make everything right. You know, they're going <laughs> to, yes. they're going to get us out of the, depths of despair that we're in right now. Um, and so the other thing I, so I would say too, you know, on that point that we shouldn't put all of our hopes and dreams on gen alpha or, you know, other groups, because there's a good chance that because of what we see millennials dealing with, they're also going to be dealing with similar things in their own ways, right? Like even if it shifts a little bit. So for example, maybe if we talk to gen Z or gen alpha, maybe they would be, they would have different things to say about race, or maybe they would have different things to say about class or, um, you know, they would approach gender maybe a little more queer, queerly than <laughs> millennials do. That doesn't mean that they are going to quote unquote, solve our problems, right? There, this is ongoing work that they're going to have to, they're going to have to do as well. Um, and also, you know, to, to something we talked about as well, you know, what's going on just in society and on a policy level is also going to impact what they do. And so depending on what, you know, that looks like, that's going to influence how people do their intimacy lives. Which, you know, so that's kind of my first point. But the second thing I would bring up, which kind of relates to that, is that, you know, I think there's kind of, I guess... For in sociology, there's kind of this interesting tug of war between sociologists describing our world and then giving the recommendations for, okay, what do we do now? <laughs> you know, there's a, a lot of folks who will say like, oh, it's just our role to describe and not necessarily, you know, advise. And then there's other folks who say, no, like the advising part is like the goal of why we even do what we do. Uh, but that being said, I do think there's kind of an interest, the sort of best solution to some of the issues that i've identified i think is it's both structural and individual and which i think you know actually our discussion kind of plays nicely into um into into this which is that what people do at the individual level really matters you know if you are somebody who does care about just for example making a more egalitarian gender relationship then you know you do need to put in the work to uh you know be educated on what that looks like and, you know, check out research that people have done and, um, you know, ask your partner what they think, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that's something simple that people uh, never do that, you know, that could probably solve a lot of problems. It's just asking your partner what they think about something and then not being offended if they're critical of something that you're doing. Uh, but at the same time, again, those sort of broader structural patterns what's happening at the policy level, that's important as well. And so, you know, if we care about something in particular, or, you know, we want to see positive change or a change in a certain direction, you know, I think uh, it's helpful to get involved and to get informed with what's going on and to be part of that conversation and not just sit back and let things happen, right? So it's kind of, the solution is sort of two part, you know, it's, individual, but it's also, you know, structural and those things, you know, there's, there's overlap between those two things as well, right? Because usually, I think, hopefully, as my goal with the book was to try to show this, which is that, you know, what's happening on sort of a broader social level matters for what we do in our individual lives, right? Right. And so, yeah, you know, we don't have, it might feel overwhelming, like, okay, well, I can't go to Washington and like make them change laws by myself, <laughs> right? But, you know, what can I do today? Today, I can do something at the individual level, you know, I can check in with my partner, I can see how they're feeling, I can, you know, assess how I act and how I think and mm-hmm. why a shift might be helpful.
0: Right. It's, it's an interesting and important thing to do to, to connect the dots between the individual potentials and the collective action problem and and you kind of have to have both <laughs> like you as an individual right. have to participate in the collective action and I think what's what often happens with stories around um, see, it seems really pronounced with millennials and we'll see if it continues with, with Gen Z and Gen Alpha is this very individualistic approach of like no, you specifically on your own and don't bother the rest of us with it should work on mm-hmm. this thing <laughs> and right. um, and like just, just work on you and collective action is pointless um, and I think drawing those those connections um, and 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 bringing that home is really important. I'm right. aware of the time, and I just want to. Um tell the audience that the name of the book is Intimate Inequalities, Millennials, Romantic Relationships in Contemporary Times by Kristen D'Alessandro. You can get it on wherever where many books are sold. Certainly, I got it on Amazon. Uh, It's from Rutgers University Press. It's really an interesting look at these different elements of people's identities and how they intersect around intimate relationships and is really the only book I found on the subject (laughs) that was specific (laughs) to millennials. Um, So I want to thank you for that (laughs) because I was like... Yes, yes,
1: quartered the market. <laughs> <All right. laughs> We're at the market
0: for sure. Um, and I really want to thank you for your, your flexibility with scheduling and, and taking the time to chat with me today. This is a great conversation.
1: Yeah, of course. Thanks so much.
0: In the Demo is produced by Farah Bostic and Adam Pierno with support from The Difference Engine and edited by Allison Preisinger and AMP Studio. Music by Omega Man under the Creative Commons license. Go to inthedemopodcast.com for behind-the-scenes research and supporting information. Please rate and review the show. Someone told us that helps.